Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 71. Um, talking uh, with this episode about the English origins of Jamestown in America row houses. So in the 1660s, the tumble-down, timbered town of Jamestown underwent a massive public works program that transformed it temporarily into somewhat of a showcase of urban sophistication. That would have been the envy of any provincial English town. The General Assembly authorized the construction of 32 two-story brick houses in 1662 as part of an effort to transform the capital into somewhat of a commercial port. The ambitious enterprise never met initial expectations, though a number of regularly laid out rows rose on the banks of the James River over the next few years. Governor William Berkeley himself built eight units. Although the location of these and others remained, or for the most part, remain a mystery, excavations at Jamestown a century ago, then in the 1930s and 1950s, uncovered the remains of four sets of row houses. Archaeological evidence confirms the construction of at least two sets of four-unit brick row houses, which were undoubtedly part of this public works program, while the third group is a two-unit row. A row of three houses may have been constructed as early as the 1640s. Pretty amazing. So the governor and his cohorts thought that the quickest way to turn a straggling village into a model of urban development lay in the construction of uniform series of individual houses connected by party walls, but they were the conceptual models and provided the precedence for the planning and finish of these New World rows. The answer, not surprisingly, appears in contemporary English building practices. Although rows had an ancient lineage in English building, in the 17th century, these English ensembles were being reconfigured in terms of plan and recast in a classical image to meet an increasingly specialized housing market. The purpose of our uh, podcast tonight is to trace the English origins of these rows to examine the manner in which Englishmen fashioned the urban form of this era of the Jamestown buildings. And this will be the first of talking about these Jamestown rows, the first of five episodes. So rows were part of the English landscape from at least the late medieval period. Uniform ranges containing commercial and domestic functions stood in English towns by the early 14th century. Many were two or three units built on a new patch of ground, an alleyway, or at the back of a yard but others could be substantial undertakings. Among the earliest to survive is Lady Rowe in Goodgate in York, erected in 1360 to provide rental income to (coughs) endow a charity at the Holy Trinity Church. Built as a two-story timber-framed range of 11 bays bordering on the churchyard, Lady Rowe was divided into a series of one-room tenements, Another long row was erected near Oldham, Hampshire, in 1476 to house artisans working in the area's cloth industry. 
The building was extended another seven bays in 1534, making the range more than 175 feet in length. Ranges sometimes combined with domestic and commercial activities, perhaps a shop on the ground floor facing the street with storage or domestic spaces behind or above the upper floors. Rose also housed impoverished members of the late medieval and Tudor society. Endowments from guilds and great patrons paid for the construction of imposing ranges such as St. Cross Hospital built in the 1440s near Winchester and the more modest establishments such as a row of five timber-framed almshouses erected by Margaret, the Countess of Kent, in 1538 in London. So by the time the construction of the Jamestown buildings in the middle of the 17th century, rows were an integral part through far the, or though were, or were going to be the dominant part of the English landscape in the years to come. On estates in the west end of London, architecturally innovative residential rows appeared at Covent Gardens, Lincoln's Inn Fields, and Great Queen Street while smaller entrepreneurs erected modest-sized rows of dwellings and workshops in St. Bartholomew's Fair and the city's expanding eastern suburbs of Wapling, Radcliffe, and Shadwell. On the northern outskirts, individuals developed small plots in Islington, constructing wooden and more impressive brick rows of three, four, and more units. Private and civic investors erected rows in New Street in Bristol, Ipswich, Kings Lynn, and other provincial towns. In industrial towns such as Frome in Somerset, urban laborers found homes in diminutive rows. On the edge of towns and next to parish churches, the philanthropic minded continued to support the elderly and the destitute by building rows of almshouses, many of which prominently emblazoned with the coat of arms of their benefactors, rivaled in scale the great medieval hospitals. Except for charitable purposes, rows, by their very nature, were integral and speculative building, comprised of two or more units at the same time. Over a short period, rows increased profits for their builders by minimizing and standardizing the materials and their preparation. Shared party walls and chimney stacks and Repetitive plans finished with similar woodwork, staircases, doors, and windows reduced building cost. The thickness of foundations, the size of the dimension timbers, and the quantity of glass, hard and hardware, and other materials could be carefully calculated to determine the economic viability of a new undertaking. By the early 17th century, Developers of new properties in the expanding cities, and especially in Stuart Lane in London, used the row as a means of catering to an increasingly specialized market. The diversion of a large piece of property into streets, alleys, and lots permitted the owner to control the nature of the development. Row buildings was an obvious means of obtaining the maximum use of street frontage on narrow streets and lots. In the east end of London, some developers constructed rows with very narrow fronts. The great redevelopment of St. Bartholomew's Fair between 1598 and 1616 
produced a number of rows with frontages as narrow as 10 to 12 feet. Most encompassed the entire plot of land and were raised several stories to compensate for their small footprint sizes. Of the 175 houses built, at least 140 of them consisted of a cellar, a shop on the ground floor, a single chamber in the, in the next two floors, and a garret in the roof. In Shadwell, in 1650, there were 13 identical dwellings on either side of Lime Street that measured 150 feet in length and about 60 feet in depth. Each unit had a frontage of 10 to 12 feet and a depth of about 15 feet. Although these rows and neighboring houses may have been small, a study of 17th century housing standards in East London suggests that they were a substantial improvement of, in terms of materials and of size over buildings erected during the previous century. So it was a great upgrade. So these were areas of dense development, but on the whole, the laborers, shopkeepers, and families who lived in the neighborhoods east and north of the Tower of London were not seriously overcrowded at this point. But elsewhere, where the market dictated, developers provided generous frontages of 20 feet or more, which allowed for the construction of more substantial rows that appealed to a different type clientele. By comparison with their two-story rows in Shadwell and houses erected in the new West End estates of Westminster in the 1660s and 70s, had frontages measuring more than 20 feet and usually more than 40 feet in depth and stood three to four stories above the cellar. Dr. Thomas Cox built six brick houses in the Bloomsbury Square area in the 1660s, all of which had street frontages of well over 40 feet. But perhaps one of the biggest differences that distinguished the rows in the West End from those of the East was the segregation and functions. Few, if any, of these inhabitants of Cox's neighborhoods, neighbors in Bloomsbury Square carried on a trade from their house. No large shop windows punctuated the, the regularity of the ground floor fenestration of these brick townhouses. So by contrast, living over the shop remained an integral part of the East London rows throughout the century. One in every 13 houses in Shadwell and in 1650 contained a shop. Typical of the period was a frame of three fair houses set up in the year 1590 in what would become Leiden Hill Street, which contained unheated shops in the front of each unit with a kitchen behind, jettied at each story of the front with gable garrets facing the street. Each of these three houses is in this row contained a passage through the ground floor to the backyard. Despite modifications to these buildings, over two and a half centuries ago, successive generations of occupants continued to reside on the floors above the ground floor shops. Just east of Aldgate High Street and Harrow Alley, a spectacular built, a speculator, so sorry, spe speculator built a row of five brick houses of the 1690s and mixed industrial and residential use for one of the first times. And one of these two units were used for tobacco pipe manufacturing, while others appeared to have served as domestic accommodation. 
this intermingling of domestic, commercial, and industrial activities in 17th century rows was not restricted to East London. In smaller market towns, new rows accommodated mixed functions. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.